My name is Bronson. I uh, am I'm here. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything important to share beyond that. Um, I, I've got a discipleship group here at the Grove, and this morning I get to open up God's Word. Yippee. So uh, we're in Ruth chapter 4, and um, before I really jump into kind of this, uh, I've been really just all morning thinking about you guys and some of the folks that are serving in Grove Kids. Um, if you can hear the sound of my voice while you're listening to this podcast, um, uh, there's just, there's something unique about this experience for me, um, having been able to teach in some different uh, scenarios when I'm in a room full of people that know me really, really well and that I know really, really well, um, I think something can happen, and I want to kind of talk to you guys about that before I really jump into this. What I'm about to tell you today is that absolutely every single square inch of your soul could get redeemed into something beautiful. And what I know about many of you is that there are many areas of your heart and many areas of your lives that you're not really sure that that could happen, and you may have given up hope on that. Not like living in desperation, but just kind of you live with a limp, you know, like it's like, well, you know, it's broken. What's going to happen, you know? God is absolutely committed to healing and redeeming every square inch of your soul. And if you hear me as a friend say that, it could be cliche if you don't push against that. Like, well, he has to say that. We're Christians. No, I don't. And yes, we are. Uh, But push against that. Because I know your story. I know what you've gone through. I'm telling you that those are the places that God wants to redeem. And in this story, if we look and find the shape of God's redemption in it, we may be able to have hope that God could do the same kind of work in our heart as well. So with that being said, come with me as friends. Um, Listen to me uh, on no authority other than what I see in this book, um, in Ruth chapter 4. But wrestle with me. Because if you just hear this and move along, it's, it's not going to help. Um, but if you fight with me a little bit, maybe we'll get somewhere. So, <laughs> sound like a plan? Good? Okay, I did youth ministry, so I need some sort of human interaction in order to keep moving. Good. Sounds, sounds good? Yeah, that works. Oh, thank you. Whew, just dying up here. Ruth chapter 4. Prepare to be amazed. Uh, Ruth chapter 4 is one of those fun little sections of the Bible where everything's happy, which doesn't always happen, especially in the Old Testament. But I want to show you that there's a happiness to this story that's uniquely different than any other happy ending uh, in the Bible. And uh, it has the shape of God's redemptive work to it. So um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of paraphrase most of chapter 4. We're going to read a little bit on the screen. But just for the sake of time, there's a lot in this chapter. And because I love you, I'm not going to go over every line of it. But you are welcome to and should, after this, go read back over it. It's a lot of fun. Chapter 4 opens up after a very risky night on the threshing floor between Ruth and Boaz. Basically, Ruth goes to Boaz and says, yo, marry me. Uh, There's a little bit more that goes into it. But she's a foreigner. She's poor. She's widowed. She's quite the catch. Uh, But she goes to Boaz on the grounds, not of how awesome she is, but on the grounds of God's faithful command that he is the one responsible to redeem them. And so she just goes, do the thing. (laughs) It's more, again, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, To redeem her and her mother, according to the law, or her mother-in-law, God called Boaz to be the kinsman redeemer. And Boaz, in faithful, said love, does that. Uh, Verse 18 is really kind of funny, chapter 3. 
Naomi says, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. And Naomi is correct. Boaz plays no games. That morning he gets up, goes right into town, and it just so happens that the person who is supposed to be next in line to redeem Naomi and Ruth was walking by. So he grabs him by the collar, probably not, but you, you get it, puts him down, grabs 10 elders from the city of Bethlehem, sits them down, and they have this impromptu court proceeding. Very public, very very real, very serious, and this is what he says. Boaz in verse 3, chapter 4, says to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belongs to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention, and I suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated here and the presence of the elders of our people. If you will redeem it, do so. If you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except for you, and I am next in line. The obvious impression is if you won't, I will. Now, the conclusion of the matter is uh, pretty much summed up in the man saying, hey, I'm not interested in doing that if Ruth comes along with it, and Boaz saying, I'm very much interested in doing that if Ruth comes along with it. And so they do a courtyard uh, playground covenant where they pinky promise double plus infinity, no take backs, and trade sandals. (laughs) Go read it. It's amazing. Uh, Boaz says to the elders of the town people, today you are witnesses that I have uh, have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Mylon. I have acquired Ruth the Moabite, Mylon's wife, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his people or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. This is an official declaration that I did the thing, okay? So he bought the land. He uh, married uh, Ruth. He did that very publicly all with them. And they, of course, consented to that, say we are witnesses. And then they bless the, the, this new union with this really beautiful blessing, which I'm going to skip. You should read. It's great. He then goes, he marries Ruth, and Ruth, who's been married for 10 years to the previous husband who died, could never get pregnant, and then she does. The son is named Obed, and at the very end of the story, we see why the story was worth recording at all. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David, and David would become the king. The great kinsman redeemer of all the nation, the one from the people who would go out and buy back all the people from captivity. But tucked in between this like kind of really happy ending and the triumphal reveal is this epilogue of Naomi. And it is my favorite part of the Old Testament, possibly of the Bible, but easily of the Old Testament. And so selfishly, I'm going to read it. Uh, Verse 13, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. And in verse uh, verse 14 and 15, the village women basically bless this, uh, this, this new child. But this part, verse 16, then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. No, she didn't. Boaz has a son. Ruth has a son. Naomi is the grandma. But what they say is that Naomi has a son. Because as this little baby is laid in her lap, this village of women begin to gossip and whisper behind her back of all of the miraculous kindness that God has visited on her, who went out empty and is now sitting with this little boy in her arms. It is, to me, the most gentle reversal in all the scriptures. But what I want to show you inside of this story is not just the beauty of the story or the happiness of its ending. I want to show you the specific shape of God's redemption in it. Because if you walk into this story and then walk away from it going, oh, they all lived happily ever after, it will not be helpful to you. But if we walk into the story and we examine the shape of God's redemptive work in it, 
we will then begin to spot and outline the shape of God's redemptive work that he is doing in your story. And that is marvelously helpful for you. So that's what I want to do. What we can see for sure is the shape of God's redemptive love. And I just want to show you guys this briefly, and then we're going to go into it in a little more detail. In the present and costly love of Boaz towards Ruth, in the past pain of Naomi being undone in a moment, and in the future glory of Ruth being swept up in the story of God forever. So we're going to look at the shape of God's redemption. A really important question to ask is what is redemption? Like, let's define our terms. So I'm really glad that you asked me that question. You guys are so smart. Redemption, broadly uh, defined, at least for today, what we're going to say is that redemption is the buying back or the bringing out of something or someone from some sort of captivity or some sort of pain or some sort of brokenness. It's the taking of something and bringing it back. And it involves a couple of things. First, it is costly for the one doing the redemption, the one who is reaching out and, and bringing the thing back. It is costly to them. And second, the object that is redeemed is left better than it is found. My wife has a great illustration about Chuck E. Cheese. You remember Chuck E. Cheese. Okay, the millennials remember Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> all right, pretend you went to Chuck E. Cheese once. When you walk up to the counter, you got all these tickets, and you're like seven, you know, and you walk up, and this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to you. you. Your whole life has been building to this moment. You walk up to the counter, and at great cost to you, you hand over your tickets, and you see that little plush animal, and you say, give me that one, and the person takes it down, and this thing, which was just an object hanging on the wall, now becomes beloved. And so at this great exchange, this transaction that is at great cost to you, another object is bought back, brought down, uh, brought out of captivity and given something better than it was. Now, in biblical language, this is actually not so far off from language that's used by God to describe his redemptive work. There's language used of slaves being bought off the auction block, brought down, brought in the home, and cared for as sons and daughters. At great cost to the one doing the redemption, with great joy to the one who receives redemption. Left better than they are found. So if that's what redemption is, why do I think that this story bears the marks of God's specific redemption? Well, you know, I'm not too smart, but I'm not so dumb that I miss the fact that the word is used like six times in this chapter. So, you know, Boaz is called the guardian redeemer or the kinsman redeemer in other translations. That's literally the family member who stands in that spot to do the redeeming, the guy that has to pay the big cost, that's his job. Boaz is called that guy. And the language that he uses to the other kinsman redeemer is if you will redeem it, do it. It's like, you know, but my point is not so much the, the, the I don't know whether that was for free. <laughs> my point is not that. My point is that redemption is in this story, but what's, what's it's said, right? But just because it's said, that doesn't mean that's all that there is to see. What I actually want to show you is where I saw it first was not in the words. Um, where I saw it was in what's missing here. Okay, so if we were to go to this story and trace the outline of what's not there, we would see that there is no pain. And that's weird because Ruth has been shot right through with lots of pain. I mean, heavy front loaded with pain. Kristen gave us a really... Uh, faithful, helpful illustration when she said that the book of Ruth, in essence, is pain, a story of pain, love, purpose, and promise. And what we see in the last chapter, for sure, is purpose, promise, 
love, like they get married, like this is great. There's this purpose of like the son is David, like wow, this is so cool. But what we don't see, and I really wanna like slow down and show you, there is no pain. No one is weeping. No one is hungry. No one is asking why God or where are you. No one is left barren. No one is left empty. Even an old woman has a son. Everything is shockingly like the Garden of Eden or heaven to come in Ruth chapter 4. And I don't know of a single Old Testament story that concludes with this much shalom. This is strange. And it shows me that what is going on here is more than just a happy ending, but is actually God-shaped in its redemption. So consider with me a little bit of the things that are no longer in this story that were there at the beginning. First, the present pain of Ruth. I mean, literally, her hunger pains are what drove her to go and look for food for Ruth and Naomi. She goes and tries to find a meal for her mother-in-law, and it is uh, this, this present pain of Ruth. Her poverty is literally evaporated at great cost to the groom who joyfully marries her that she would now have a home. Naomi, her past pain is undone in a moment, right? This is the same woman who walks in in, in in chapter one and tells these same women, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord's hand has gone out against me and I have been left in bitterness. Don't call me Naomi, call me bitter one. And now, all of that undone with a little baby laid in her lap. And the story would almost be mocking to Naomi if it was not so kind and gentle to her in the healing of it. Because in chapter one, she didn't just say, call me bitter. She used this literal illustration as something that would be impossible. What? To, you know, to Ruth and, and Orpah. What, what, is God gonna give me a son in my old age? Or are you gonna wait until he grows up to be your kinsman redeemer? No, my daughters, this is what she says. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me and here from the Lord's hands, which have now turned towards her, is laid into her lap a son. Almost mocking her pain if it was not so wonderful. And then, of course, the future pain that is evaporated at the end of the story as well. See, this begins in the time of the judges, right? Chapter 1, verse 1, opening scene, the backdrop of this. That was a really bad time. It was a time of attack, of chaos, of judgment primarily of God's crushing judgment on his people who were bent not to do God's will, but to do what was right in their own eyes. And there was no king to rescue them. There was no hope of salvation. What they were left with is this backdrop of judgment and sin with no dawn of hope until the very last word of this book, David. He, the king, would come. He would come to rescue his people. And so this story, in, in every level, is pulling pain back out, is undoing it, is making it no longer true. And that's something that I want to show you is not, not normal for other stories. Like, listen, guys, we love stories. That's why TV is, like, in every one of our homes. If you don't have a TV, you could probably come to mine, and we could watch TV together. But my, you love stories. We, we know these stories. And there's like three big boxes of how redemption stories go, right? Like you've got your Disney Channel stories, right? Again, sorry, I'm talking to the millennials right now. But when you were 12 and you watched these movies and everything's bad at the beginning and then by like happy chance it all just kind of works out by the end and some like spunky girl and her girl power like saves the day and her family and then it's all good, right? Nothing wrong with girl power movies. I'm just saying that's not this story, 
This is not a story where we look at Ruth and go, girl, go get it. You know, like, do better, try harder. That's not this story. She couldn't. Nor is this a story that's a little bit more like the Captain America Marvel stories, right? You know, like the guy steps forward with the cape blowing in the wind and like, I'll do it. You know, Boaz is not that kind of a hero. Those stories end with the characters saving one another from their pain. And then, of course, there's the Hallmark stories, and, and those always have the power of love, where two people in brokenness and sorrow find each other, and then their love saves the day. And that is not this story. It's there. There's two people that love each other, but that's not what does the saving. And you need to understand that if that's true of this story, you have no hope for yours. But if that's not true for this story, if what's different about this story is that there's a God who is above this story, who is writing out a way through the pain, out of the pain, to undo the pain. If there is a God whose pen is at work in this story, there may be a God who is big enough and kind enough to write a way out for your story. And there is. And that's what's so good about this story, is that it's not just a happy story. It's a a story shaped by God's redemption, and that makes it a far more true story than any story you could expect. And let's be real, we love a good anti-hero, right? Like Batman gets worse and worse and worse. If you look at him in like 1960 compared to the last one they did, it's crazy how much worse he's gotten because our culture is like, man, happy stories, they're not real. It's not really true. You can have heroes, but they kind of suck. And this is the kind of story that is so good, it's almost insulting if you don't push back hard enough on it. That God could redeem every square inch of your soul like he did in this story, is that too much for you to believe? I hope not, because I'm going to show you why. I want to show you now, for the last part of our time together, I want to just zoom in on these three characters. I want to show you what it shows us about the shape of God's redemption. I want to start with Boaz, I want to look at Naomi, and then I want to close with Ruth. This won't take us long, but I think it's going to be helpful for us to trace the outline of God's redemptive work in this story to show you that if this is how God's redemption works, you'll know where to expect it and where to see it in your story. And so first, let's look at my boy Boaz. Boaz, in this story, the storyteller spends an inordinate amount of time talking about this court proceeding. Right? If you actually look at the text, it is the longest part of the story, and arguably for us, the most boring, minus the sandals swap. That's kind of cool. But everything else in the story is, is, you know, is much more condensed. And in fact, the rest of the story could have been just said like this. He woke up, and he did the thing, and then he married her, and they had a kid. But instead, they spend this, like this huge amount of time. Well, why? Well, there's two reasons. First, I believe that he's obviously trying to show us the legitimacy of, a, of King David who sits on the throne of Israel who has Moabite blood in his body but an Israelite's claim to the land. And so he's establishing the, the legitimacy of the kingship of David as an Israelite who has the blood of a Moabite. That's a big deal and that's done here. That's why he spends the 10 elders are there. That's why the city of Bethlehem is cited. Like this is, an, this is doing something historically. But I, I don't think that's it. And I think the author is also showing us that in the way it talks about how Boaz accomplishes this. He does it with a lot of integrity. He does it with a lot of faithfulness. But he does it consistently pointing at the law of God. There's this kind of order to things that he presents. And so what I want to do is give you guys a little bit of a cultural background to understand what makes this 
the shape of obedience by the instrument of God's uh, uh, the instrument of God's redemption in Boaz. Here's what I mean. When God redeemed his people from Egypt, he bought them, brought them back out, broke them away from the the king of Egypt, from Pharaoh. And when he did that, he said, you will be my people, I will be your God, here's how you're going to live. Cool? And they said, yes, we're in. That was the covenant. Now, the law or the standard of the covenant, how they're going to live together, for the sake of this morning, think about it this way. There's the high laws, uh, and then there's the lower, more detailed laws, okay? And by the high laws, what I mean is the Ten Commandments, don't steal, well, that's pretty broad. Right? Like, how do, I, how, do I, how do I apply that? Right? Well, that's where the lower laws come in. What does stealing look like? And the, the rest of Leviticus, the rest of Deuteronomy kind of outlines what living together looks like by not stealing. But there's laws that are higher than that still, and Jesus points to this. The highest laws are love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so, for example, can you steal and also love your neighbor? No. Therefore, loving your neighbor is highest. Now, I'm going somewhere with this because in the law, there was these other specific laws, these lower laws, about how to love a woman who was uh, desolate, who had no men in her life. She had lost all of her support system, all of her social network. Everything was broken because all of her men had died. In that culture, a woman without son or, or husband was a woman heading off to die. She had no hope except the kindness of strangers around her to feed her. So what God does in his kindness is establishes a system of responsibility for the weakest members of his society by saying, in this broken world, when these broken things happen, you are responsible to care for those women. And that that system was called uh, the kinsman redeemer, okay? There's more we can talk about, but inside of this, what you need to know is if that law, that lower law, was obeyed selfishly, that's a pretty terrible law. And God never gave that law to be uh, 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 obeyed apart from the highest law, which is to love your neighbor as you care for those women who are most in need. Does that make sense? Here is a great example, if you're still not tracking with me, in this story, we see an example not only of the lower law of the kinsman redeemer doing the thing God called him to do, but actually a perfect example of the highest law being obeyed. The shape of Boaz's obedience is filled with love for his neighbor, and the 10 elders, if you notice, they don't do anything about the, the guy that says no. Because as they're trying to weigh out what to do next, what's pretty clear is that if Boaz is the one who fulfills this lower law, he would do it filled with love for neighbor. And if this other guy does it, it won't be. Therefore, this is the right thing. Go and do it. Here's why this matters. The shape of God's redemption in this story is outlined by a man submitted to God and filled with lover uh, with love for his neighbor. And that is the shape that God wants you to bear in the lives of the people around you. If you are to be an instrument in the hand of the great redeemer, you must be submitted first to his law, first to what he says about the world, and also filled with love for neighbor. Obedient sacrifice for the sake of others, is how God redeems people in this world. Now, at glance, you, you're like, hang on, wait a minute. I thought you said that Boaz wasn't the, you know, the superhero. Like, I thought Boaz wasn't doing the redeeming. Well, he is. But it's a redeeming that only takes effect because God's power fills it. So, if you will, it's kind of like what Boaz does is he steps out in front of everybody. He takes his power, he takes his money, he takes his prestige, he takes his influence, and he spills it across the desk of God. 
And God takes his pen and dips in the ink of that sacrifice and writes a way out for Ruth in her story. And the sacrifice of Boaz is used and woven into the story of Ruth in a beautiful way that though costly, I'm not really sure he cared. Like I think seeing his sacrifice woven into the fabric of Ruth's salvation was worth it. And that's exactly what God does with people who lay their lives down, spill their lives out for the sake of their children to see the redeeming work of God, for the sake of their friends who are skeptical of the claims of God, for their neighbors who do not know God. When you spill your life out on the desk of God, he will dip his pen in it and he will write ways out in the stories of others who need redemption. This is arguably the absolute purpose of your life. You don't exist for another reason than to be an instrument in the hand of the Redeemer for those around you who need redemption because God is committed to redemption. Now, the second place that I want to show you the shape of redemption is found in Naomi's life. Um, I've already told you, like, that whole, like, baby on her lap thing is just for me. I, I just, I don't know what it is about my heart, but it's just like, oh, that, that. Like, I want that for every broken place in my life, you know? Um, I hope you see, like, the, the shape or the flavor of that. But what I want to try and show you a little bit more is I'm trying to get words around this because it, it's hard to see it. The story of Naomi's life begins with the pen of God writing in very dark letters. And as this story kind of begins, um, Naomi rightly goes to God and, and claims that he is in control However, she's kind of nearsighted in her suffering, which happens, so that she also forgets that he is also working towards her kindness in bringing this pain into her life. And so what I need you to know, and this is especially where as my, as my friends, I know the stories that you guys have gone through, and there are places in your life that I need you to know that when he wrote those in, he used his tears as ink. There was, there was weeping in the in the sorrow that he brought into your life. And that is not just wishful thinking. We see that expressed in the prophets. In Ezekiel, it says that he doesn't delight in bringing judgment on the wicked. So even if what Naomi and her family did was sinful, he did not delight in bringing the death of those men. But what he was doing in that, as he wept in it, it had a trajectory that was heading towards better than he found her. And that's the the upside-downness of Ruth, that Ruth, as she sat there with this child in her arms, looked back over the sorrow and said, you have been kind to me. That God would bless you so much that he would break your brokenness down to a point where it would worship him? Do you dare to believe that one day in heaven you will sing about the pain you've gone through? That you'll confess with the angels he's been good? He is that committed to your redemption that nothing, no sorrow, no sin, no suffering, no stone will be left unturned, no guilt will be left unwashed, no shame will be left unseen, nothing will be left unredeemed, nothing. Or he's a liar, and he's not. In Romans chapter 8, he swore to you, swore to you, that he would work all things together for good, for those that love him and are called according to his purposes. Swore it. And for us, this is where we also need to keep in mind the distance between chapter 1 and chapter 4. 
many of you have gone through moments in your life and you are still in chapter one. And some of us, for small parts of our life, are now in chapter four. We see the redemptive work of God. We see what he was up to. We see the son of God coming on the horizon. Like we, we see it, we're like, oh man, God's good. It's easy for us there. But all of you need to remember that on the way, we all begin in Ruth chapter one, and God is earnestly devoted to bringing us to something better than Ruth chapter four. All things made new. That's what he swore to us. So how does he accomplish this? How do we know that he is committed to our good? Because of the third example we see, the third shape of God's redemption. The trajectory that we see in Ruth's life is that the goodness that God has devoted himself to in your life is tied immediately to the glory that he will gain from doing good to you. In Ruth chapter four, what we see is Ruth caught up in this future glory that's coming down the road for her. The shape of God's love has a trajectory to it that is more than just Ruth's life. It's cosmic in its scope. He's doing all these things in this really small family, in this really like backwood area. Like nobody, it, it, if, if King David was never a king, this, this story never would have been written, right? And yet, he was. And yet, we can see thousands of years later, we now speak the name and the story of Ruth. Why? Because God is glorified in it. So what you need to know is that the trajectory of the shape of God's love is that it is for his glory always. Yes, he's going to take you out of sin. Yes, he's going to take you out of brokenness. Yes, he's going to reach into those broken places and bring you out at great cost to himself. But always so that he would be glorified. If you will, he's doing this so that all of heaven and all of earth would whisper behind your back and gossip about you, about all the kindness that God has given you in Christ. That one is forgiven. That one has been healed. This is the whispers of the angels behind your shoulder. This is what everything in creation for the rest of eternity will say about you. That one has a son. This is good news. Because what it does is it speaks to the good God that brings wholeness out of brokenness. But, you know, the story's kind of funny. It ends on a really triumphant note, but as Americans, about 2,000 years later, we're kind of like, wah, wah, you know, like, King David, woo, woo, you know, like, why? Well, because we know that's not really where the story ends. God, the great author, was really just getting started. And so what I want to do is start with where he got and then show you where he went. So David would be the kinsman redeemer of his people. He would step into this role that from God's people, he would be the, the one sent into God's people to save them from captivity, uh, first from his enemies as well as from all other sorts of stuff. But David would live and David would sin and David would die. And then David's sons would inherit the throne and they would live and they would sin and they would die. And God promised that there would be a son given through David who would live forever, who would never sin, and who would rescue his people from their sins. That there was a, a, a Messiah, a better son of David who was coming. And, and they kept looking, and he kept coming, and they kept dying. Every king that came after David was a failure, wholeheartedly. Well, some were better than others, but ultimately none of them could redeem the nation the way that they needed and so what happens is the story opens back up in Matthew, back in Bethlehem, a group of people in great darkness 
captivated by a foreign enemy, hopeless with no king. And into this story steps the great co-author of the story himself. The great author's son is not written into the story. He steps into the book in which he was making, and the father picks up his pen. And over the life of Jesus, he speaks, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is the one who will live perfectly before me, who will submit to my law and will love his neighbor perfectly, the the perfect instrument in the hand of the Redeemer. But actually, he's, he's also not. He's actually the hands of the Redeemer himself stretching out and doing the healing and doing the forgiving and, and doing the, the, the bringing out, the, the redeeming himself, and then stretched out and lifted up on a cross. And as the hands of the Redeemer are lifted up, the pen is picked up, and God writes over top of the cross, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And as he in tears, writes out every sin that you have ever committed, etched on the body of Christ. In Colossians, it says that it's as if the letter or the, 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 um, the ledger of our transgressions was nailed to the cross. He writes every sin across the body of Christ and then draws down all the wrath and judgment that you deserve. And falling on Christ in our story is everything that you are owed, which is judgment. And all of your sin is crushed in that place along with his son. Jesus steps into the place of the greatest kinsman redeemer, the one who in love at great cost pours out his life, spreads out his body, lays down his everything so that into the ink of his blood can be written across your life, redeemed. Mine, I will not forsake you. In the color of his blood, we have been marked. And what I think is even better is that the pen did not stop, but continued to write, he is not here, he is risen, into the mouth of his angels. As they proclaimed his resurrection, once and for all, the final way through everything was written through. Like it was, it was done. This is the way out. This is the way to freedom. This is the way to ultimate redemption. You can find it through my son. This is, the way all, <laughs> this is the way all good stories in God end, through his son. As the pen of God was lifted up to set us free through Christ, I want you to know that Christ was thinking of us in the writing of this story. Ruth's story, being caught up in the glory of God, the son of God came to us, right, through Mary, who was the daughter of David by many years, who was the son of Ruth, who was the son who was laid in the lap of Naomi. And so literally into the lap of Naomi is every hope and every desire and every dream that every wrong thing would ever be undone. In her heart and in yours is set this child who would eventually give us the promise of God. I hope you now see why that's my favorite. I want your story to bear the shape of Christ's redemption. I don't want it to just be a good story. The point of this story is not good things happen to good people. It doesn't. It is not that good things happen to those who wait. It won't. 
The point of this story is that good is promised by God to his people and everyone who runs to him and hides under the shelter of his wing like Naomi and Ruth did will find a redeemer committed to saving all to the uttermost, as the Puritans would say. (laughs) So we are called to live like Boaz, to spill out our lives and to to take the shape of someone submitted and obeying God so that he would dip his pen in our, uh, the ink of our sacrifice and write ways out for our friends and our family for his glory. We are invited like Naomi, if you're more in chapter one or two of your story, to pray a confession that goes something like this. God, what you are doing is not good yet, but I confess that you are therefore not done yet. That is a very Christian prayer. And you can pray that. Like Ruth, we are being offered a new way to live free, better than we were found, but it's gonna cost you everything. You're gonna need to leave behind your people and your, your, your city and your language and your, your gods and your sin and your shame and your guilt and your pain and your loss and your, your hopelessness and your despair. You're gonna leave everything back there. And if you flee from that and cling to the God that Ruth clung to, you will find everything in your life will be one day redeemed. You have a God who is committed to it for his glory and for your joy, and he will not forsake that. I pray that as you go this week, you would be filled with hope, you would be submitted as an instrument for his glory, and that you would go and gossip and whisper and tell the good news of all the kind things that God has done for you in Christ. Father, we love you. I pray that you would fill us with hope to do these things in Jesus' name. And that as we go, Lord, we would be filled with greater and greater desire that you would, you would begin to do this work in us. In the places that we, we feel like are hopeless, you would begin to do that work, God. Let us set those things in your hands now. And as we do, God, we pray that you would be the redeemer that we see here. That our lives would take the shape of your redemption. And that our hearts would be filled with hope. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider, follow our social media at Grove Church PSL, and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.